Chapter 2 of Jerry McCauley, His Life and Work by Jerry McCauley and edited by Robert M. Offord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kristen Hand. Chapter 2 Struggles and Temptations. In the way a thousand snares lie to take us unawares. Satan, with malicious art, watches each unguarded part. From that time, life was all new to me. Work was nothing, hard fare, nothing, scowls and harsh words, nothing. I was happy, for Jesus was my friend. My sins were washed away, and my heart was full of love and thanksgiving. I hated every sinful way. I had formerly smoked, but something within now said it was wrong, and I gave it up. And the Lord began to use me in the prison among my fellow convicts. A great work was commenced there and spread from cell to cell. The prisoners began to read their Bibles, to call upon God, and to praise the name of Jesus. Jack Dare was the first man I began to pray for. There had been a revolt in the prison, and he was one of the leaders. This revolt occurred some time before my conversion, but I had no hand in it. Jack was in the same workshop with me and was quite a favorite. The convicts often paired off in friendships, and he and I went together. If either of us had any little luxury, we shared it with the other, as children would do. And when I got salvation, I wanted to share that with him. I approached him on several occasions with the subject, but he repulsed me with sneers. He seemed to think I was playing a bold game to get out of prison, but he learned at last that I was in earnest. He found me several times weeping and poring over my Bible. Once he lifted his hand to strike me, and even spit at me. But when I told him that I had no resentment and could stand it for Jesus' sake, he was touched. That astonished him. I said nothing more for a week, and he seemed to be getting worse all the time, but I felt sure the Spirit of God was striving with him. I kept on praying with strong crying and tears, and I knew God would save him. One day he told me he had been praying, but it seemed dreadful to him to pray. I knew all about that from my own experience. Not long after this, as he came out of his cell one morning to go to work, I caught sight of his face, and it was all lit up. He was at the head of the column, and I near the foot. He just glanced at me with a smile and gave an upward turn of his eye to heaven, and then I knew it was all right with him. I could scarcely keep from shouting. The first one he told the good news to was the keeper. Jack, said he, I'm glad you've got religion. It was not that he cared for religion, but he was afraid of Jack. He was such a desperate character, and now he knew he would have no more trouble with him. All the time I had to work for Christ was about half an hour each day, and I improved it. This was when the regular keeper was relieved, and we were allowed then to talk. I had my men all picked out, and I went from one to the other, saying the few earnest words I could say. Several of these were converted. One or two wandered away when they left the prison, having no Christian friend to look after them. Since that time, they have come into the helping hand and have been sweetly restored. About two years I went on thus. My faith was so simple, I felt the Lord would give me anything reasonable I might ask. And I never had a doubt until after I came out of prison and mingled with Christians, and their wavering, unstable, half-and-half -half faith staggered me. My cell seemed all that time like heaven, and I cared very little whether I ever came out of it or not. The love of Christ was so abounding, it drowned every trouble. No one could insult me. If my comrades abused me, I felt that I could pray for and forgive them. After this, I was led to pray for my liberty. At first, I felt that the desire to be set free was of the devil. But I asked the Lord about it, and he gave me the assurance that my desire should be granted. And it was. I received a pardon from the governor after having served about half my time. 
seven years and six months. When I got out of prison, I was more lonely than I had been in my cell. I could not go back to my old haunts and companions, and I knew no others. If I had found a single Christian friend at that time, it would have saved me years of misery. And here I must say that it does not seem to me right to turn men out of prison and make no provision for their future well-being. Many a poor fellow has been driven to crime and back again to his prison cell for want of kindly counsel and direction when he first came out again into the world. I wanted to do right, to please God. The first thing I did was to inquire for a prayer meeting. I was told of one, but when I got to the door, I was afraid to go in. I'd never been to a Protestant meeting, and nobody invited me in. I kept steadily away from the fourth ward, lest I should be tempted by old associates. Unfortunately, the only friend I found directed me to a lager beer saloon to board. Lager beer had come up since I went to prison, and I did not know what it was. They told me it was a harmless drink, wholesome and good, and civil as root beer. I drank it, and then began my downfall. My head got confused. The old appetite was awakened. From that time, I drank it every day, and it was not long before I went from that to stronger liquors. The night I stopped praying, I shall never forget. I felt as wretched as I did the day I went to prison, and now I began a career of sin and misery which I cannot fully describe. Satan got completely the upper hand of me. The dear Savior who had been so gracious and so precious to me in the prison, I let go. How I wonder now that he did not let me go. But he did not. I had obtained work in a large hat shop. The workmen had a strike, and I was one of the ringleaders. We were all dismissed, and thus I was thrown out of employment. Then, it being wartime, I went into the bounty business. Rascally business, that. I would pick up men wherever I could find them, get them half drunk, and coax them to enlist. They received the bounty, and I had a premium on each of half the amount. I made a great deal of money in this way, which I spent freely. I became a sporting man, went often to the races, and my downward course was greatly quickened. I got in with a man who has since died of delirium tremens and went boating with him on the river. We would buy stolen goods of the sailors, compel them to enlist on fear of being arrested, and we took the bounty. We went on for some time in this thieving, racing, speculating, and bounty business. We kept a recruiting office in New York and another in Brooklyn and found plenty to do and might have grown rich if I had saved what I made. But all this time, my conscience was far from easy. I remembered the days at Sing Sing when the glory of the Lord shone in my cell and I was shouting with joy for sins forgiven and improving every moment to win souls to Christ. I knew I was all wrong, and yet I could not stop. I seemed to be on a down track and rushing at furious speed. When I felt the most troubled, I would go drinking and try to drown conscience in whiskey. After the war was over, I went to boating exclusively, buying and selling smuggled and stolen goods. There was a good deal of this business among sailors and captains. I gave counterfeit money for the goods until I became well known for this, and then I had to give it up, for no one would steal for me when they found I gave them nothing for it. From this I became a river thief, boarding vessels at night and doing the stealing myself. How many narrow escapes from death I had while engaged in this wicked business. One night we were out on the river in our boat looking for chances. We had been disappointed in some of our plans at Greenpoint and pulled down to the Williamsburg Ferry where we fastened our craft to the Idaho, one of the regular ferry boats, to be towed across to the New York side. We had steamed out a little way into the river when the Idaho was discovered to be on fire. It seemed but the work of a moment from the first alarm till the whole boat was in flames. The greatest confusion prevailed among the crew and passengers. We let go as soon as we could for fear we should be swamped, but before we could push off, two men jumped in. 
We rowed them to shore and then came back, not to save life, but to get booty. Another ferry boat came alongside and rescued about 40 of the passengers, but there were 10 or 12 who threw themselves into the water, and these we picked up. We saved one Christian woman. We held on to her as she clinched the sides of the boat with her hands. The whole scene was terrific. The fire raging, the screams of the perishing, the struggles of the poor creatures in the water impressed my mind deeply with the thought of the last day in the fiery hell to which I knew the sinner must go. And yet God used us wicked people in the midst of all this terror and confusion to save his children. My partner wanted me to let the people go and pick up the cloaks, hats, and various things that were floating in the river. But I said, no, I haven't got so low as that yet. And I thank God now he helped me do what he did and get all those poor people safe to the land. Another night in Brooklyn, we stole a rope fender off a ship, the whole value of which was not more than a dollar and a half. And yet for that, we could run such fearful risks. The captain of the vessel saw us and seizing his revolver fired at us once, twice, four times. The balls came so close that I could feel them as they whizzed past my head, but they did not hit. God preserved me that time also. For what? After I got round the wharf and out of danger, I felt frightened more than before. Something whispered, if that bullet had hit you, where would you have been? And the response of my conscience was, in hell. All the time I was prosecuting this business, I had a longing in my sober moments to be a better man, to lead an honest and sober life. But I felt that after all the joy and peace I had before had, I never could come to God again. Satan always quoted that text to me. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. So to quell these memories and convictions, I kept all the time under the influence of liquor. If anyone had spoken to me kindly and in a Christian spirit at that time, it would have subdued me. But no one came near the poor wretched outcast. One night we went over to Brooklyn on a plundering expedition. I was very drunk. There was a certain vessel at the wharf which we had our eye upon, but I was too intoxicated to do my share of the work, so I stayed in the boat while my partner boarded the ship. By some mishap, I fell into the water. The boat went one way, and the eddy carried me in another direction and out from the wharf. I went down and touched bottom and rose to the surface. Again I sank and rose. The third time, the thought came to me, this is the last, and now you are gone, you are drowned. Hell seemed opening under my feet, and I fancied I could hear the wails and shrieks of the lost. Then something said, Call on God. But how could I? I felt it was too mean. I had sinned too fearfully. But I did call, and the Lord heard me. I seemed to be lifted right up to the surface of the water, and the boat, which had drifted off in another direction, was brought right to me so that I could get hold of it. I can't tell how it was, but it always seemed to me a miracle. The water had sobered me, and after I got hold of the boat, I managed to get in. After I was in, something seemed to say to me, God has saved you for the last time. If you ever go out on the river again, God will let you drop into hell and be lost. It was a very clear, strong impression on my mind, but instead of softening me, it made me angry. I took my partner into the boat without a word. We rowed across the river, and I went home and dried my clothes. What a load of guilt was upon me. I could think of nothing else to do, and to rid myself of it, I drank and drank and drank but no amount of liquor could drown that inward voice. In spite of all, I would have gone out again, but my partner met with an accident which prevented him going, so notwithstanding my desires, I did not. We had no money, I couldn't borrow, and I was actually in want. 
This may seem strange to some, but while we made a good deal of money in our wicked life, we laid up nothing but spent as fast as we got it. It was the wages of iniquity, and as the Bible says, put into a bag with holes, so that it did us no good. The sting of conscience remained with me, and a strange desire to be out of this wicked business and in some honorable employment. It seemed wonderful that such feelings should so haunt me all the time, but now I can see that it was the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that was pursuing me, and would not let me go until I had been brought back from my wanderings. The John Allen excitement had just commenced in Water Street, and the good Christian people were going through the ward to bring in the sinners to the meetings. I was sitting in my room one of these wretched days when I heard a stranger in the hall below. The landlady was ill upstairs, and the person who had entered came up. Just outside my door, I heard a pleasant voice say to her, Do you love Jesus? That voice, those words, it seemed like a long-forgotten music. It recalled the past happy days when I had known the love of Jesus, and my heart was deeply touched. No, indeed, do I love Jesus? And who is he? was the rough answer I heard. My good woman, and you don't know who Jesus is? And then the woman passed on to the top of the house to see another inmate of the house, whom he had been sent to visit, and the landlady came into my room. Who is that? said I. Oh, it's one of them tract peddlers, said she. Why don't you treat the man with respect, said I. She was silent, but I thought at once that perhaps this man, whoever he might be, might get me a job of honest work, so I went out and waited on the landing till he came downstairs. He saw me, but I was a frightful-looking object, and I think he was a little scared at facing me. However, I accosted him, and he told me to come downstairs, and he would talk with me. I had a colored shirt on, an old pair of pants, and my hair was cropped pretty close. I don't wonder the missionary didn't want to talk with me on the landing, but preferred to have me below on the pavement. We walked out together up the street till we came to the new Bowery. As we approached the Howard Mission, he invited me in. I didn't know until then that there was such a place. A gentleman there met us and spoke to me very kindly. They both said that if I would sign the pledge, they would see what they could do for me. The idea struck me as it never had done before, that a drunkard like me couldn't get work, and there was no hope of decent employment unless I did reform. So I signed it. But I told them I shouldn't be likely to keep it, that I had taken it many times before and broken it. I wanted to be honest, but I knew I couldn't keep it. Try it again, they both said, and ask God to help you. Well, to please you, I will. I went right home from there and told my partner what I had done. How he laughed. You take the pledge, he said. He had a bottle of gin in his hand at that moment, and turning out a glass, offered it to me. Tom, I said, I have just taken the pledge. But I drank it, and as I put down the glass, I added, Now, this is the last drink I shall ever take. Yes, till you get the next, said he. Just at that moment in walked the missionary. I kept as far away from him as I could, so that he might not smell my breath. I think if he had asked me, I should have honestly confessed to what I had done. But he did not. He only invited me to go out and walk with him. I went, and as we walked, I told him I was going out on the river that night, for we were dead broke, I was hungry, and must have some money. He looked sad and troubled. Jerry, said he, before you shall do that, I'll take this coat off my back and pawn it and give you the money. I looked at the coat and saw it was worn and old, and I was touched to the heart. It was as much as I could do to keep the tears out of my eyes. Here's this good man, I said to myself, poor as I know he must be willing to take the coat off his back and pawn it to keep me from doing wrong. I don't know as he saw the effect of his words, but I hung my head. 
I will give you a text out of the Bible, said he. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I remember my answer. I'll take that text and trust God. Then he went away, and in a little while he brought me fifty cents. I got something to eat, and we did not go out boating. The next day, as Tom and I, with Maria, now my beloved wife and helper, and Nellie, the two girls with whom Tom and I were intimate, were in our room together, the missionary with some Christian ladies came in to see us. They talked with us a while, and then said they would pray. I wished they wouldn't, but I had not the courage to say so, and they went on. Those prayers had a wonderful effect upon me. Day after day, my new friend followed me up, and so closely that I could get no chance to drink. Tom, I would say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. But Tom would answer, Will the Lord come down from heaven to give you a beefsteak? The missionary would often repeat the text he had given me, but Tom wouldn't accept it. I felt, however, that I could. I had had some experience of which he had not, and I believed the word of the Lord. Soon after this, we were invited to the missionary's house to take tea. He lent me a coat to wear. After the tea, they had singing and prayer. I cried and cried. Pray for yourself, said he, and God will save you. I don't know how, I said. I can't put the words together. It wasn't that I had forgotten all about praying, but after I had sinned so fearfully, I felt afraid to utter such solemn words. Pray the prayer of the publican, someone cried. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I prayed it. My heart was all broken, and I repeated the words over and over again. Put in for Jesus' sake, said the missionary. So I put that in, and oh, the joy that came into my heart, not like the first time, but more calm and peaceful. I am saved, I cried. Jesus has saved me. Oh, the joy and excitement of that evening. I shall never forget it. These good people had come down into the fourth ward to labor among the very lowest of low and wicked men and women, and God had given them a trophy in me, one of the hardest cases in the ward. How their faith was strengthened. After that, the missionary used often to walk round with me, his arm in mine. This was a great help to me, for all my old companions had heard of my conversion, and it was such a strange event that they would shout after me. So it was a protection to be with someone whom they truly respected. It is not so much of an event now for a notorious sinner to be converted in Water Street. The wonders of God's grace have been greatly multiplied down there within the last few years. But before this came about, I had a long and trying probation. I found work in the ferry company. There, I was tempted and drank again. My good friend, the missionary, had left the city. The meetings were given up, and I felt lonely and sad. I had not then joined any church. Maria was out of the city, and I felt I must go see her. I took Sunday for the visit, though conscience told me I was doing wrong. It was a cold, snowy day. I went in the stage, and when we reached the halfway house, all the passengers got out and drank. They looked at me as they were taking their hot whiskey, seemingly with pity, as though I couldn't afford to buy. My pride was touched. I went up to the bar and asked for a sarsaparilla. The man handed me a gin bottle and a glass. There was an inward conflict, and I grieved the spirit. Coming back from my visit, I lost the stage and had to put in at a hotel. There, the devil made me drink again. I could only think of the house, empty, swept, and garnished, where the unclean spirit had dwelt. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. 
The unclean spirit had come back into my heart with his miserable company, and I was in a sad plight. I went out of the hotel and straight to a church which was open. I sat down, and though I was drunk, I seemed to know what was going on. I was very angry with myself and cursed God. I said, I'll never go back to Water Street to disgrace God and the good people there. I made up my mind I would kill myself. I went out from the church and took the cars for home. What a day I had spent. My brain was on fire. My heart was cast down. My conscience was sore. Yes, I thought again, I will kill myself. I made up my mind to let myself down from the platform and let the cars go over me. But the conductor was there and pushed me in. While I was watching my opportunity, the Holy Spirit came to me and my heart was softened. The next night I went to a meeting, confessed my sin, asked Christians to pray for me, and I prayed myself that God would forgive me. I fell once after that, but God lifted me up again. The Sunday after this last slip, I went into the Howard Mission while the Sunday school children were singing. I sat down on a side seat, and then I saw on the platform the gentleman mentioned in the next chapter who had previously been introduced to me by the missionary and had spoken kind and encouraging words to me. He looked at me and recognized me with a friendly smile and nod. I felt ashamed to look him in the face. Just before the meeting closed, I got up and slipped out of the door for fear he would come and speak to me. I did not want him to know that I had been going wrong. But he was too quick for me. He caught me in the passage outside the chapel door before I could get down the steps. He held out his hand and, seeing my downcast look, said, What is the matter, Jerry? I held back my hand and said, I am not fit for you to speak to me. He said, Why, what is the trouble? Tell me all about it. I then said, I have been in hell for three days, and I told him what had happened. He gave me a warm squeeze of the hand, and then putting both his hands on my shoulders and looking me straight in the eye with his own moist with sympathy, he said, Don't give it up, Jerry. Try again, and keep trying, and hold on to Jesus. His words and look and hearty grip strengthened and encouraged me wonderfully. All this time I had kept up the use of tobacco, and that created a thirst in me. And I didn't belong to any church, and so had no Christian influence to hold me. But soon after that I joined a Methodist church on probation, and that strengthened me. I had another trial. I was required to work on a Sunday. I told my employer I was not only reformed, but trying to lead a Christian life. Jerry, said he, you are no better than I. I am a Christian man, but I have to work on Sunday, and you must too. I want you to come tomorrow to work. But I felt it was wrong and did not go. On Monday morning, I was discharged. I felt badly, for he was a church member, and I a poor, weak beginner in the Christian life. Never mind, said my boss, trying to console me. You go to work, and I guess it will be all right. No, I won't, said I. I will trust God. But I would not leave until I had seen my employer. I found him leaning over the side of the ferry boat. I tapped him on the shoulder. Captain C., I said, have you discharged me for wishing to keep the Sabbath? He made no answer, but I knew he had heard me. I tapped him on the shoulder again. Captain C., have you discharged me for trying to do right? Jerry, said he, you haven't accommodated me and I can't accommodate you. Good morning, said I, and walked away. After I began to try to live right, I went on for some time without work. Then my friend, the missionary, came back and introduced me to Mr. H., a rich gentleman in the city. Mr. H. shook hands with me and told me to keep on doing right, to trust God, and when I was in want, to come down to his office and see him, and he gave me his number. The shake of his hand and his encouraging words built me up. I resolved that I would never go to him for money, but his kindness put new life into me 
and I often went to him after that for encouragement and advice. No matter how busy he was, he always had a kind word for me and would often excuse himself from his big friends to talk with me. End of chapter 2